I'm going to pray for us, so um, I want to invite you to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for um, this time that we can gather and worship, um, not just singing songs, but uh, meeting with you. Thank you that, Jesus, you said that when the congregation sings, uh, you sing amongst them. In a very real way, you are here with us, that when people gather in your name, even couple or three people, that you're there in the midst. Thank you that it's not just sing-along time, but that we're encountering uh, the living God. And when we encounter you, uh, we're changed. And so, Father, we thank you. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus. We think about how much better our lives would be if we were more like Jesus and less like us. How better our families would be, how much better parents we'd be, and how much better children we'd be, how much of a better friend we'd be if it was less of us and our selfishness and more of Jesus in our lives. How much better our church would be and how much better our world would be. And so, Lord, we're praying and asking that there would be less of us and more of you in our lives and in our church. Help us to be more like you uh, through this sermon series that we look into and begin today. Father, we pray that you would help us to be more like you and to dream your dreams and to have your heart in us. We thank you that today we get to celebrate two things. We get to remember um, our graduated, well, last night we, uh, welcome, or we uh, honored our graduated high school seniors um, at their youth ministry senior banquet. We thank you for um, just beautiful lives that have really left an imprint in so many people. Pray that you would bless them as they go in the next chapter of their life journey that they would know that the author and the perfecter of their faith, the one who holds their lives as a pen writing on the scroll of history, is good and will not give up until the work is complete. We thank you that today we welcome sixth graders into our congregation here, and we thank you uh, for their lives, uh, precious all of them. We th- uh, pray that you would help them to grow as disciples of Christ. As a church congregation, help us as we go through the process of chartering as a church and as there transitions in our Korean congregation, as we uh, go through the process of, uh, of, of preparing, training, installing elders here at Harvest. We thank you for the good work that you're doing. Pray that you would help us to be the church you're calling us to be. Thank you for our, ki- our children's ministry, our youth ministry the ways in which they labor, their leaders and their members labor so, um, so diligently that Christ might be shaped and formed. Thank you for our house churches uh, where we can live out the call to reach the lost and to disciple the saved in order that the world would be changed through us. Thank you that here we exist to glorify your name by equipping Christ-centered leaders to transform the world. And we thank you for the part that we get to play in that. Thank you that we can pray for missionaries around the world. And uh, because this service is being recorded and streamed online, we uh, don't want to say their names, but we thank you for the places in which they serve. And as we lift them up to you, you know their names, you know their hearts. We lift up those who serve you in mobilization and those who serve in college campuses, those who serve you in places like uh, uh, China, North Korea, in places like Ecuador and Japan, in places amongst the Uyghurs, where the Uyghur um, minority of China are scattered. Thank you for those who serve you in, in Turkey, in Jordan, in Australasia, in Cameroon, in Spain, in Vietnam, in Taiwan, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, in Taiwan, I'm sorry, in Thailand, and in Myanmar. Father, we ask your blessing over our workers. We pray that you would help us to be further equipped, that we might be able to uh, pray better, to encourage more holy and to go as you lead us and as you call us into the places wherever you would send us. May the joy of the Lord be our strength for obedience, and may the gospel drive us 
uh, to live for you. We pray that as we hear a um, couple testimonies from our rising sixth graders, and we hear the word of God, we pray that you would help us to worship you in our hearing, and that you would be with Evelyn Kwok and Manny Kim as they share, that you would embolden them and give them faith. We pray that you would be with me, my gracious master and my God. Assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, through your word, through your people, the honors of your name. We thank you so much. We love you. We listen for you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right. Uh, thank you, ladies, uh, for sharing your stories and your testimony. Um, can you, I, I'm, I'm just really thankful for our church, for the ways in which um, the Lord has been blessing us. Can you just look to someone next to you and say, I'm thankful for you? Can you do that? I'm thankful for you. If, you are, uh, if you're new today, welcome. Uh, all of our sixth graders are new. Thank you for, uh, for being part of what God is doing here. Um, if you're new today, um, you, you, you've never been here, thank you so much for being um, the church and for bringing it into this room today. Uh, it is a blessing and a privilege for us to be able to uh, just be able to worship together in this way. Um, I, don't, um, I don't like movies all that much. Um, some of you are huge movie buffs. You love watching movies all the time. Um, there are basically a uh, few movies that I have seen, and I really like them, and so I'll watch them over and over and again. Over and again. Um, but probably the, the, the genre of movies that I like the least, I don't like uh, fantasy and science fiction movies, but the one that I like even less than those are musicals. Any musical lovers out there? Okay, a few. <laughs> okay, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. I've just offended some of you. I hope you will still listen. Pastor Josiah played Troy in High School Musical in uh, a foreign country, and so um, I don't mean to be off-putting, but I always thought that uh, musicals were difficult to understand. Like, uh, when people are talking, I think I can understand people talking, but when they start singing and stuff like that, like, then all of a sudden it gets like mixed up and confusing, and I don't understand really what's going on. But there is one musical that I really like. I liked it so much that it was the one movie that we've bought on uh, Amazon Prime. It's called The Greatest Showman. And I've talked about this before because I think it's really uh, entertaining and the songs that they sing are really good and I can understand the lyrics to it and it helps to kind of uh, develop the plot and pass along the theme. Basically, The Greatest Showman is a movie that was based off of the life of a man named P.T. Barnum, who was the founder of The Greatest Show on Earth, The Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus. Um, it kind of rags to riches story, traces him from when he was this poor, like nobody kid to become, well, nobody in the eyes of the world, and then becoming this big shot in the eyes of the world. Uh, to me, as I watch it, as I was thinking about this, the story of The Greatest Showman is really a story about vision and about seeing things that other people don't see, seeing things and, and really believing them and dreaming them in order that they can become actuality. It's a vision that becomes real. It's the story of a, a, a guy who, again, grows up with not much, and people look at him and they look down on him, and he sees in himself the greatest showman that the world has ever known. He looks at a building that is old and dilapidated and that nobody wants and he buys it because he sees in it a show that people from all over the world could come to and see something and watch and marvel at what goes on within this building. It's the story about a man who sees things that other people don't see. It's a guy who sees a bunch of misfits in the eyes of the world and he brings them together to be part of a family that will live and die and fight for each other. It's the story of a guy who sees 
what other people see as a midget, a little guy walking around, and he says, I see an army general riding on an elephant to the praise and the applause of everybody around. And other people see a woman with a beard who is only worthy of, of being hidden behind a, a curtain. He sees a woman who needs to be pushed to the forefront, a woman whose voice and whose talents make her the envy of everybody and bring beauty to a world that is desperately in need of it. The story of the greatest showman is a story of a man who sees things that nobody else sees and is able to see them become reality. The tragedy of the greatest showman, though, is that in time he loses sight not of what he originally saw, but he loses sight of the reason why he was doing the things that he was doing. He forgets that it's for his wife and for his children that he would give everything for, and he leaves them behind in order to pursue more fame and more fortune, to dine at a table with kings and presidents and politicians who praise his name. It's a story of a guy who saw, but then who very quickly lost sight of the things that really mattered in life. And so at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, they're hanging out at this bar because the circus has burned down. He's lost the circus. He's lost, pretty much lost his marriage, is about to lose his family. And then he has this moment of clarity when this group of, this ragtag group of circus performers say, you know what, as disappointed as we are in you, that you're embarrassed and ashamed of us, we're still a family, right? This is where we belong. And so from that place, he begins singing this song of, this, of, of realization, a song where he wakes up to remember what all this was for. And he says, I've been blinded by the lights. I've been blinded by fame. I've been blinded by the aristocracy. I've been blinded by all of these things. And now it's time for me to come back home. And we will come back home home again. As we gather here as a congregation called Harvest, maybe we've been blinded by things of this world. Maybe it's been by COVID-19. Maybe it's by the busyness of life. Maybe it's about because of this thing or that thing or some other thing that's blinded us from remembering what this was all about here as we live together as a church, as a congregation called Harvest. What I want to do over the next four weeks is to call us to come back home through a series called This Is Us, by telling those of you who've never heard and by reminding those of us who know, who are we as a congregation? Who are we as a group that calls ourselves Harvest? Who are we? For four weeks, I want to say, this is us. This is who we are. And I want to begin by talking about our family name. We're a family. That's who we are. We're a family called Harvest. And what I want to do is I want to look in Matthew chapter 9 to give us the passage of Scripture where Jesus speaks the verses that give us the name of our congregation. The reason this is important, guys, if we can get this and we can come back home to this place, man, it's going to change everything about the way that we live. It's going to re-energize your lives. It's going to give you mission as you go to school this year. It's going to give you purpose as you go to work, even though you don't wake up feeling like you want to go to work. When we get this in us and we realize that this is who we are, man, it gives a light under our, a light in our pants, a fire in our bellies to go out into this world and say, I've got a reason to live. I've got a reason to gather. I've got a reason uh, to be. And this is what we're going to see. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. And this is the word of God for the people of God and for us today here at Harvest. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, all the towns and villages he's going, 
teaching in their synagogues. Each village had a synagogue. He's teaching there, and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom that he came to establish and healing every disease and sickness. So crowds of people are coming. It says, but when he, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest then, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. This is God's word. Um, Probably I have preached more sermons on this passage than on any other passage in Scripture. It's one that um, has become so dear to my heart. But in this passage, we see three things that Jesus sees that nobody else sees. You know how like P.T. Barnum saw things that nobody else saw. We see things, oftentimes you see things that I don't see and I see things that you don't see. We see things differently by looking at the same thing Two different people can see two different things. And my family goes to Walgreens, for example. We were at Walgreens uh, the other day, just in the parking lot, um, picking up a pizza at Papa John's. When we look at that squiggly W in Walgreens, all of us see something different. We get excited for different reasons. One of us in our family gets excited because they think a trip to Walgreens means they're going to get chocolate. (laughs) Another one of our family members, when they see Walgreens, get excited because they think they're going to get candy. Another person gets excited because they think they're going to get a poppet or some kind of a fidget to play with. Another one in our family gets excited when they go to Walgreens because they see baseball cards. We all see something different when we go to Walgreens. Why is it that we see what we want to see? It's because we see what matters to us. When Jesus looks out, at the world in which we live and the people who inhabit it. When he looks at you and me and he looks at everybody in the world, Jesus saw three things according to this passage that you and I don't often see. And unless we see it, we will not be able to live in fulfillment of who he has called us to be as a congregation called Harvest. Jesus saw three things. One, he saw people who are harassed and helpless. Do you see it? When you go to school, when you go to work, when you go to Walmart, when you go to Walgreens, when you go to the gas station, when you go to the coffee shop, do you see people who are harassed and helpless? That's what Jesus sees when he looks out at the crowds. But not only that, he sees something else that we don't often see. He sees a harvest that is plentiful. He sees people who are ready to jump on board the kingdom of God. He says, they're ready. It's plentiful. Do you see it? Do you see that harvester as you go out into the world? Do you see that the harvest is plentiful? The third thing that Jesus sees that we don't often see is he saw workers, people who are bringing in the harvest, people who are ready to go forth. Do you see that in yourself? Do you see yourself as a laborer in the harvest field to come and join the reapers, all you kingdom seekers, laying down your lives to find it in the end? Do you see in yourself a worker for the kingdom of God. These are three things that Jesus saw. So who are we as a congregation? Who are we at Harvest? This is us. First thing, we're a family that embraces messy people. Who are we? We are a family that embraces messy people. The way that Jesus says it is that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed 
and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Within that crowd of people, there were rich people, there were poor people. There were men, there were women, there were old, there were young. But in all of them, okay, people who looked successful, people who didn't, people who looked smart, people who didn't. When Jesus looked at all of them, he said, what I see is I see people who are harassed and I see people who are helpless. Uh, many of you may know, some of you may not, but in 2005, as I was graduating from seminary, seminary is a school that pastors and missionaries go to get trained and people go who want to learn the Bible. So I was graduating from there and I thought that my time here in Orlando and at this congregation called Harvest was done uh, the last day before I was to announce that to our staff. Um, this is the passage that the Lord God spoke to my heart with just resounding clarity and with just a, a sense of conviction. This was the verse that God spoke into my heart. It says, do you see within this city people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The call of Jesus in my life to be here was a call to be an under-shepherd to the good shepherd and to shepherd the flock by helping those who are harassed and helpless to find their way to the shepherd. And the more I, the more I do ministry, the more I realize that this is my singular call. It's really, this is what it is. Casting Crowns wrote a song, and, 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 and I resonate with it as I was looking at the words this morning. It says, this is who we are. This is what I am. This is what you are. I am a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. Like, that's our life. That's what we do. Like, we're not the, the most brilliant. We're not the most gifted. We're not the most talented. We're not the most educated. We're not the most successful. We're not the richest. We're not any. I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's what we do. This is who we are as a congregation. This is us. And there are people in your schools, whether you go to a public school, a charter school, a private school, a Christian school, there are people in your schools that you'll encounter beginning this week who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're people that you're going to go to work with today, this week, tomorrow. People you're going to sit next to on the bus, on the train, on the whatever it is that you go to. People that you're going to talk to as they take your order for food who you might not think anything else of, but Jesus looks at them and he tries to get us to see that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's all of us who are born into this world. All of us are looking, a, a sheep without a shepherd. I, I'm glad that we've had a couple people in the past two months preach on Psalm 23 for us. They talked about how much sheep need a shepherd. Without a shepherd, a sheep don't, doesn't know what to eat. They starve to death. People are starving to death. Without a shepherd, a sheep don't know how to drink. People are thirsty. You can use that in the slang terminology of it, or you can use it in the regular word, but people are thirsty in our world. Without a, without a shepherd, sheep don't know how to rest. They're people who are restless, who are tired, who are weary, who are grinding themselves to the bone because they think that in working themselves so hard, they'll find meaning in life. We don't find rest if we don't have a shepherd. In fact, sheep without a shepherd are very dangerous, and when they're so needy, we can do a lot of silly things that look strange to the rest of the world. This is a, a video that I want to show you that's Pretty popular now. You, you may have seen it. Uh, you may have seen it. But this is, this is what sheep do, and this is why sheep need a shepherd. Um, they're going to play this video. Uh, there are many videos, if you look them up, if you Google dumb sheep, 
uh, you will find a lot of videos, but this was the shortest that I found. Here's a sheep, he's stuck in a crack. <laughs> That's what Jesus is saying. This is a state of humanity. Jumping from one crack to another crack. We are addicted to crack. <laughs> well, we're addicted to something. Trying to find our way. Sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says, these people are harassed and they're helpless trying to find a way. It doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. We're looking for something that's going to lead us to a better life. I picked up my phone um, a while back. I picked up my phone and I realized that my little one, my little daughter had picked up the phone also and she started typing something into Google. She too, harassed, helpless, looking for a shepherd to lead her, looking for someone to guide her. And I opened up my Google app and she had typed in there, how do you get your brother to be nice to you? <laughs> We're all looking for someone to lead us, to guide us, to help us. Who are we? This is us. We're people who see that, harassed and helpless, trying to help people find a shepherd. This is, this is what I do on Sunday morning. I'm just trying to help people hear the voice of the shepherd. When I go down uh, from the pulpit and I live life in the week, meeting with people, it's trying to help them navigate their way to follow the good shepherd. Jesus says, listen, guys, this is our, this is our issue. People in our world, shepherdless sheep, who are desperately looking for someone to take them to a place called home. This is where we live. This is where we breathe. This is where we have our being. Who are we? We're a people that embrace these kinds of people. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. And if we have the great physician, if we have the good shepherd, then wandering sheep are going to come in here, wandering sheep who jump from one hole to another hole to another hole. And we can look at them and say, you know what? They keep doing stupid stuff. I can't believe they're doing things like that. Jesus doesn't look at them like that. He doesn't see them as people who just make bad choices because they're selfish or because they're prideful or because they love the wrong things. He says they're harassed. They're helpless to do anything beyond jumping from one hole to another hole. Jesus says, don't be surprised within this family if you see people who are messy because this is who we are. Last night at our youth ministry senior banquet, as people were sharing what they were thankful for about this graduating group of seniors, one of two people, one kind of person went up there and they said, Okay, to my biological sibling up there, I love you. Thank you for taking care of me. I'm going to miss you, but I get your room now. See you later. There's that kind of. Then there's another group of people who goes up there, and they're like, you know what? I was harassed, and I was helpless. I was lonely, and you reached out to me. And through you, I felt the love of the shepherd. People, people made fun of me. I was so worried. I was so fearful. But you took a chance and you spoke to me. And since that first time, I've never stopped clinging to you. 
because you helped me to see more of Jesus. This is us. This is what we do. It's what we do in house churches. My house church is, oh, my house church keeps getting these like weird people in it. That's what we do. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Nobody stopped going to Winnie Palmer or Arnold Palmer. Nobody stopped going to ORMC because I don't want to go to the hospital anymore because too many sick people are there. That's, why sick, that's where sick people go. Huh. Nobody says, oh, hey, what happened? I thought uh, you, don't look as, you don't look as buff as you used to be. How come you don't? You, what happened to your gym membership? Oh, I, I gave up my gym membership at LA Fitness. Why? Too many, too many unfit people went there. That's what a gym is for. It's for people who are not fit on their way to being fit. I stopped going to church. Hey, nobody should be saying I stopped going to church because too many messy people are there. Jesus said, expect it. There are going to be sick people at the church. People whose marriages are falling apart, that's us. People who struggle with addiction, that's us. People who struggle with gossip and lying and this and that and all these different sins, that's who we are. Don't be surprised. Jesus said, that's who we are. We're a people who embrace these kinds of people because they're the ones who need a shepherd. They're the ones who need a great physician. They're the ones who need guidance because they're sheep without a shepherd. Do you see that? Not only here, but everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. You're going to see them. You're going to see them this week. And Jesus says, would you see them with my eyes? Because the first thing that Jesus says, this is who we are, do you see? The harassed and the helpless. The sheep without a shepherd, first thing. Second thing, Jesus goes beyond that. He says, I don't just see people and have compassion on them. It says, he went through all the towns and villages teaching, preaching, healing. Because when he saw them, he had compassion. Who are we? The second thing, this is us. Okay, we're a family that believes that God is at work right now. Okay, right now. In this moment. Okay, in this moment. In the life of people that you think, you know what, they're sheep without a sheep. You know what, they're too far gone. They're sick. They're rotten. They're no good. Jesus looks at that same group of people who are sheep without a shepherd, and he says, the harvest is plentiful. That that group of people that you walk over, walk by, walk past, because you don't want to give them a second chance, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. They're ready. You know what this does? If you really believe this, and I believe everything Jesus says because he said he's going to die, he died. He said he's going to, on the third day, he's going to be raised. He was raised for that. If Jesus said those things and he actually did them, then everything he says, man, you got to trust. You got to believe this. He is absolutely 110% proof positive trustworthy. Jesus said, right now where you live, in your school, the harvest is plentiful. At your workplace, the harvest is plentiful. At your local target, the harvest is plentiful. If you believe this, then you know what it does for us? We go forth and it, it, we're literally on a treasure hunt wherever we go. He's like, I got buried treasure somewhere around here. You just don't know where it is, but it's there. And if that's really there, then man, you're like, it, it could be Daniel Beck. It could be Reagan Melanius. It could be Nathan Mullins. It could be Yedem. It could be anywhere. Who is it? I don't know where it is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to flip over everybody in order that they might be the harvest that's ready right now. That's what Jesus says. He says, do you see that? Because a lot of us don't see it because we see with eyes of sight, not with eyes of faith. Jesus says, we walk by faith, not by sight. Do you see 
So one of the things that this does for me, and I don't know why, maybe it's like, we have these two elder candidates, Chris and, and Eugene, who are house church shepherds. And so I was reading their applications, and as we, we've been going through training, um, one, of our, one of our brothers said that, um, you know, with my, with, my, uh, with my kids getting older and with one of my best friends who loved Jesus going home to be with the Lord sooner than we thought, that there is a sense of urgency in my life. I have this sense of burden in my heart too. If I really believe that Jesus Christ, what he said, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then there's got to be an urgency. If people I know are dying and spending an eternity apart from God and Jesus is the way and he's the way to glory, then there's got to be an urgency in the way that I live. And so I'm revisiting habits that I used to, that I used to practice when I, was, when I was younger. I'm going and I'm like, when I hang out, like, I'm tongue-tied trying to say this, but basically what I'm doing is we've been told not to talk to strangers, right? But I think I'm old enough that I can talk to strangers. <laughs> I don't think anyone's going to kidnap me. I, I hope not. Um, but when we're young, we're told not to talk to strangers. I, I remember... I, <laughs> Do you remember this? Uh, there was a horse, a talking horse that came in, and he would say, nay, nay, from strangers, stay away. Did anyone get that lecture? Yeah, just me, yeah. <laughs> so, I, police officers would come in, they'd bring a like, picture of a horse, and they, <laughs> that's what they would say. Stay away from strangers, right? They would tell us if your parents call you on the home phone. Back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. Like, we didn't have our own phones. We had one phone for each house, like several phones, and they were stuck on the wall, and so they were attached to the wall, and so when someone rings, you don't know who's calling, whether it's for you or your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister, so everybody runs to the phone, and they answer it, thinking that it's for them, hoping it's for them, and then they say, okay, it's for your dad, hold on, and then you call your dad. So they would say, when someone calls for your dad and he's not home, or your mom and she's not home, you got to tell them they're in the bathroom. <laughs> so I said, all right, so my, I learned that lesson, my brother learned that lesson, so we came home, and one of my dad's friends, Mr. Lee, his daughter's was Susie and his brother was, her, his son was Hamilton. Mr. Lee called uh, our house and my brother answered the phone. He said, hello. And he said, is your daddy there? And my brother said, he's not, he, uh, no, he, 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 dad wasn't there. My brother said, uh, he's in the bathroom right now. Even though it wasn't a stranger, it was friend, but, but that's what he learned. And so he's trying to put into practice. He's in the bathroom right now. Okay. When your dad comes out of the bathroom, tell him Mr. Lee, Hamilton's dad called. Okay. He said, okay, I'll tell him. He hung up. Dad was gone for a while, hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. He might have been working. I don't know where he was. About five hours later, Mr. Lee calls back. He calls and he's like, and my brother says, hello. He's like, hey, hello, is your daddy there? And he says, oh, my dad's in the bathroom. <laughs> so Mr. Lee, incredulous, starts yelling at my brother, says, he's still in the bathroom. He was in the bathroom five hours ago. Well, my brother didn't understand that you weren't, you know, there's a difference between strangers and friends of parents. We've been told not to talk to strangers, but maybe, maybe, not if you're a sixth grader or eighth grader or tenth grader, maybe not if you're young, but people that you don't know who aren't a danger to you. This is what I've been doing, just trying to talk to people. Talk to the person who's taken my money at Publix or talk to the person who's making my drink at when Han Coffee opens up, Where, wherever it is that I'm going to, right? To whomever it is, 
whether we know them or not. One of the things that I do often, and, and if you've eaten with me, you may know, we sit down to eat at a restaurant, thank the server, and we'll say, hey, we're about to, to pray. You can join us if you want, but just wondering if there's anything that we can pray for you about. Is there anything that I can lift up in prayer? And honestly, most people will be a little bit caught off guard, and so they'll say, ah, you know, thank you, everything's going well, but hey, really appreciate that. But every now and then, people will say something that's pretty significant. Sometimes it has even gotten emotional when we've asked them if there's anything to pray for. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where people are when they're coming to serve. I don't know why they're working there. I don't know what circumstances are going on in their lives. But maybe, just maybe, there will be a person this week that I'm eating with and a server comes by and I ask them if there's anything they can pray for, I can pray for about. And then it begins to come out that they realize that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, here's what Jesus did. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. See, what Jesus does here is what he always does throughout his life. Jesus is always meeting people who were like this, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. It was a, a guy named Zacchaeus who had all the money in the world, but he was empty because he didn't have a shepherd. So empty that a wee little man was Zacchaeus. He climbed up on a tree so he could see Jesus. That's how hungry he was. Jesus was seeing people who were harassed and helpless, like Zacchaeus, and he said, come down, I'm going to eat at your crib tonight. Like Matthew, he said, leave all that stuff behind. Leave your life. You're hated by everybody because you're a traitor, but come, come and follow me and I'll show you how to live. He saw people who were leprous and nobody wanted to touch them because they were seen as unclean. And if you got near a leper, you couldn't worship in the temple. So nobody wanted to go near them. Jesus went up close and personal and he would touch them. Jesus saw women who were caught in adultery. He saw people who were promiscuous. He saw people like that. And it's, I don't know about you, but a lot of times I'll be like, man, they shouldn't have done that. They shouldn't have made those choices. I try not to be judgmental, but part of me, at the very least, I say, you know what, but, but, but they're wrong. They did something wrong. See what Jesus does when it says he has compassion on them is he shifts the equation. When, when they're wrong, it means I'm right. And all of a sudden, it's them and a barrier and me. Jesus doesn't do that, even though he was always right. What does he do? He has compassion on them, to suffer with them. All of a sudden, he's on the same side as them because love is what Jesus has in his heart. And when you love, it's not us versus them. It's, it's us, and it's soon to be us, or potentially us, or could be us. See, when Jesus loves them, he doesn't put them on the other side of the net. He puts himself on their side, and he says, I'm what you're looking for. And he has compassion on them. Because Jesus believes that in any moment in time, John 5, 17, my father is always at work to this very day. Therefore, I am working too. 
Guys, this is who we are. If you and I believe that God is at work within our world, if God is working, then by the grace of God, I need to be working too. Man, I want to be, if, if God's working and he's preparing people, if, 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 if people are ready, the harvest is ready to be harvested, then I want to be involved in that. Like, well, I, I don't want to sit back in my comfort chair and my lazy boy and not do it. If God is at work, then I want to see that. I want to be involved in that. I want to believe that God is at work. And every person that we see, like that next conversation that we have with them could be a life-defining, life-altering, life-changing, life-transforming conversation. This is who we are. This is what we see. Do you see? When you go to school and you walk into, I, I heard a lot of schools don't have lockers anymore, but when you go into the crowded hallways, oh my God, I pray that you would see that there is an abundant harvest waiting for someone to go and to bring the hope of Christ to them. That maybe you would have a dream and you would have a vision that maybe I could start even amongst my circle of friends at Olympia High School. There's five of us ninth graders who are going there. Maybe we can start this like prayer group. Maybe we can get dropped off 10 minutes before school and we can start something. There's a reason why we're here together. Maybe we can be a light that lights up the darkness of our school. Wherever you go, in your workplace. Maybe you find another buddy there. Maybe it's some of you work at the same company too. Maybe it's about praying, God, give someone a like-minded vision so that we could do something to light up the darkness here. That if God, you're at work within my business, if you're at work within my company, if you're at work in my neighborhood, if you're at work in my community, then Lord, use me in some way because I want to see a harvest that is, you said it's plentiful. And if it is, then God, help me to see that with eyes of faith. That's who we are. We're family not only embraces the messy, the broken, the needy, but we're a community, we're a family that believes that God's at work in us right now, that God is at work right now. Third thing that we see, Jesus saw not only the harassed and helpless, not only the harvest, he saw harvesters. Third thing, who are we? This is us. We're a family that disturbs the comfortable <laughs> in order that you might comfort the disturbed. We're a community, we're a family. If you're comfortable, we want to disturb you. We don't want you to be comfortable because there are people who are disturbed who need to be comforted. And how are they going to do that? By us who have the comfort of Christ going out and being the hands of comfort to those who are in need of his comforting presence. Do you see what Jesus says? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What, understand this. Jesus did not say, the workers are plentiful, but the harvest is few. It's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, we've got all these people and we don't have enough people to save. That's not what he said. He said, there are tons of people who are waiting for the gospel to come to them. But the challenge is that there's not enough people who are wanting to go. That's the issue that Jesus points out. So when he says pray, he doesn't say ask the Lord of the harvest to get the harvest ready. He says ask the Lord of the harvest to kick these people out who are comfortable so that they might go into the harvest field. That's what Jesus is saying. Literally the word he's using is ask the Lord of the harvest to eject people to ballistic, baleo, it's the word from which we get ballistic missile that gets shot out. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send, to eject, 
to forcefully eject people into the harvest field. That's what happened in the book of Acts, right? When the church became comfortable, persecution came, and they said, dude, we got to boot, scoot, and boogie out of here to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And they did with the gospel because Jesus was ejecting them because they prayed that the Lord of the harvest would send them. See, the challenge is not that there are too many people who are disturbed. The challenge is that there's too many of us who are comfortable. That's the challenge. Who are we as a church? We're people that are willing to disturb and disrupt the comfortable. Harvest 101, our meat harvest class, several years back, we introduce ourselves to the church, I'm sorry, to, to new people, and the new people introduce themselves to us. And during one of these classes, we were sharing, like, what did you like best about our church? And one father of two, who's now a house church shepherd, he said, what I like best is that our church will not allow us to remain comfortable. Because you see, here's what the gospel does. It comforts us first, and then it challenges us to go. Because if you've received the gospel, you've received the greatest treasure that the world could ever, ever hold in their hands. If you've heard the gospel, you've heard the greatest news that the world could ever hear, the world is dying to know. And if you've been entrusted with that, then you become a steward of it. You have to give. You've got to go. You've got to go. It's a sad, sad thing when comfort keeps us from hearing the cries, isn't it? Every new parent will know this. Sometimes at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning when that newborn baby starts crying and you hear it, the love of a parent makes you want to run and jump and go and feed and change their dirty diaper. No, it doesn't. It should, but it doesn't always. Because selfishness begins to kick in and you start praying like you ain't ever prayed before that your spouse hears the cry before you need to get up. Why? Because I'm comfortable in my bed, in my Tempur-Pedic pillow, <laughs> in my bed that can scoot up at different angles and change the temperature, whatever it is. If you have that, no, it's okay. That's okay. But get up when you hear the cries of your child. Because a lot of times comfort can be the greatest challenge to hearing the cries of the disturbed. But whenever we get up out of our comfort zones, something beautiful always happens. The glory of God constantly lies one step out of your comfort zone. You think Peter was happy that he left the comfort of that boat that one day? Do you think those four friends were happy that they decided to break through the comfort of convenience and convention and they broke through the roof of that house to get their buddy to Jesus? Do you think that little boy, maybe that little boy was standing at the edge of the crowd, maybe he was like somewhere in the middle of the crowd, but you think he was, he was regretful that he gave up his lunch so that others could be fed that day? So the glory of God, the miracles of God, the blessing of God, the transforming power, the kingdom of God at work through you and me always lies one step outside of the comfortable. But when we do time and time again, God uses you and he uses me to be a nobody trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. That's what Jesus does. So I remember hearing about this story from a lady named Becky Pippert 
who wrote this book called Out of the Salt Shaker. Salt does no good when it's in the salt shaker. It's got to come out. She talks about this church um, situated on a college campus, an old traditional church, high steeple church building. And in that church, predominantly older people, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, well-established, successful, wealthy, pillars of the community, pillars of the church, dressed to the nines, dresses, Sunday best, fine suits, distinguished people. That's who, who worshiped at that church. But they lived right on the doorstep of a college campus, and the church knew that if we don't start getting younger, we're going to die out 10, 20, 30 years. They knew they needed to reach the college population, but they didn't know how to do it. And so they just kind of went on their way. It's comfortable to do that, right? We know that. But there was this guy, he had long hair, nothing wrong, with, nothing wrong with long hair at all, but he had long hair and he had holes in his clothes. He had tattoos and kind of like an unkempt, dirty looking dude, college student. He walked around without shoes on, walked around bare feet all the time. You know, there's sometimes you meet people like that. A little bit strange, but that's, you know, that's how they roll. This guy like that, he walked in and he came like a couple times. And one particular day, he came in pretty late to service, maybe like 30, 45 minutes late. And service had already started. Preacher had gotten up to preach. And all the seats were filled. They were pews. And all the pews were filled. One middle aisle. And so he walked in there late. And he didn't look like anybody else for many different reasons. So everybody's just staring at him. So he's walking down the aisle. People are like, dude, ain't no seats here. Like, you, you, you can just stand in the back. They're, they're thinking that. They're not saying it. But he's walking from the back to the front. There's nowhere to sit. They could make space for him. But nobody wants to make space for him. Because he's smelly, because he's messy, whatever reason it is, because he's young, because he's not wearing shoes, he's not dressed like the rest of us. For whatever reason, nobody's scooting over for him. So as he's walking down the aisle, looking for a seat, people are like, oh my gosh, he's got halfway, got about three quarters away. There's nowhere to sit. So he gets to the front row, getting really uncomfortable. He's disturbing the service. Quickly find a seat, if you will, but there's nowhere to sit. And so this guy just looks around and then in the middle aisle, on the first row, he just sits down on the floor. Like, who does that? That's what everybody was thinking. Who does that? Nobody does that. Everybody's looking at him, like judging him, like, you can't do that. It's really hard to do that if you're dressed in a suit. That's why maybe nobody in the church did that. But they wouldn't think to be able to do anything like that. And so from the back, this one man... Very distinguished gentleman, dressed in his black suit, 80 years old, walks with a cane. He's a deacon. He's been there a really long time. He starts walking down the aisle, slowly with his cane, trying not to cause a disturbance. But he's disturbing everybody, obviously, because everybody knows. One guy walked down the aisle, that's disturbing enough. Second guy walks down the aisle, that's disturbing enough. Not only that, but they know what he's going to do. And so people's minds are already thinking, yeah, somebody's got to do it. Better this guy, he's not going to, what is he going to do, beat up this old man, 80 years old? Nobody's going to mess with him. Not that he could beat anybody up, but he's just, he's just old and distinguished. And so he's walking down with his cane. There's like a couple people who are thinking, he shouldn't do that. It's going to cause a scene. Just let him sit there. For the most part, everybody else is like, it's going to be a little bit disruptive, but you got to do what you got to do. He walks over, walks over, walks over, walks over. And by this point, the pastor's like, oh, my gosh. This could get really ugly. So he stops his sermon. He just watches because he knows he's got to do a little bit of damage control after this. 
So the old man gets behind the guy and he puts his cane down. And with all of the energy within him, this old distinguished man sits down next to that college student so that he would not worship alone. The pastor, shocked as everybody else is, says, you know what, whatever I'm about to say, you're going to forget. But what you just saw, I hope that you'll always remember. What happens when you take one step, two steps, three steps out of your comfort zone and people begin to see and you begin to smell a little bit more like the shepherd and people begin to see Jesus through you. Hasn't it been true in your life that some of the greatest joy in life has come when you took one step outside of your comfort zone? The time when you took one step outside of that airplane and you began to skydive. Do you remember that? <laughs> I don't remember that. I've never done that. But maybe you do and you're like, this is pure, utter exhilaration. One step outside of your comfort zone. Or maybe that time when there was that girl, she was way out of your league. You feel like you're a five, she's a ten. But you said, I'm just going to put some some mental confidence into me, drink that deeply, and I'm going to go and I'm going to talk to her. And you asked her out, and now you're married. <laughs> and you're like, my goodness, I'm glad I didn't miss that chance to take a step out of my comfort zone. But you know, the greater joy than you taking a step out of your comfort zone for yourself is when you take a step out of your comfort zone and you do it for the sake of other people. That's when life really gets exciting. That's when you have your senior banquet and people begin testifying about the ways in which you've made a difference in their lives. That's when you begin to take steps and sit with somebody next to you who shouldn't be there, who shouldn't be there, and you shouldn't be there either. But by you doing that, they begin to see the glory of God. Isn't it true that in all of our lives, we've been changed because somebody took a step outside of their comfort zone to comfort us when we were disturbed? When somebody close to us had passed away, there was someone who stepped into that void. When we didn't know Jesus and we were harassed and helpless, someone came and led us into the embrace of the Savior. When we were fearful, we didn't know where we were going to spend our eternity, someone said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a step of faith. And they begin to speak the hope of Christ to you. Hasn't your life been changed by countless nobodies who pointed you to somebody? This is who we are. This is what we do. If none of those resonate with you, what about the time when the God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame? For you, for me, for us, for a world that is broken, for a sheep who need a shepherd for people who are harassed and helpless. This is us. We're the harvest. We're the harvesters going into the harvest field.
because the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. So you're reminded that this is who we are. The invitation of Jesus, come back home to that place. As a congregation, let's come back home. This is us. Let's take our light. Let it shine for the whole world to see. Let's pray together. Guys, this is us. If it's your first time here, maybe you feel like, I'm not sure if I want to be part of that. I want to be comfortable. I want to be anonymous. That's okay. I mean, it's not okay because that's, you know, Christ Jesus calls us to more. But it's okay. But if you call Harvest home, this is us, this is you, then this is us. We embrace the hurting, the messy. We believe that God is at work right now. We're willing to disturb the comfortable, even being disturbed, in order that the disturbed might be comfortable. Can we pray? One person, two people, either that or one way. Who are one or two people in your life this week? Maybe someone you're going to see at work or at school. Someone you're going to see at a gathering today. One person that you want to share the hope of Christ with. Just pray that to the Lord in commitment. For others, maybe it's not a person. Maybe it's one way. I don't know who that person is right now, but God, I'm going to pray. Lord, give me compassion and help me to be bold, to believe the gospel. Lord, I want to shine your light because we, what we do Sunday matters, but what we do as harvesters matters more Monday through Saturday. This is us, so let's pray for a minute together before I pray for all of us, and then we'll sing one song as we close. Let's pray in your heart. Pray to God honestly. You can pray quietly or you can pray out loud, but let's just pray honestly right now for one person or one way that you can live out this message today. Let's do that for a minute, and then I'll pray for all of us. Father in heaven, we pray that from the sixth grader to the white-haired, no-haired men and women in our congregation, to everyone in between, from the youngest to the oldest, Father, give us an urgency to believe that you love wandering, shepherdless sheep, and that the way that you love them here and now is through your people who believe that you're at work who believe that the harvest indeed is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's why our missionaries have left everything behind, families, friends, comfort, churches, in order that the name of Jesus would be made known, the shepherd call would be heard by the sheep in broken nations. Lord, would you be calling some of us across the seas or across the street? Cross the seats in our cafeteria for the glory of your name. Help us, Lord. May we live as harvesters, 
disrupt our comfort by your grace and love in order that we might bring the comfort of the gospel to those in need. Thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. May we love the world that you so love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.